my ladies, gentles, in you come, and those who are neither, or some, come hither all such tales to hear of misrule, magic, flight, and fear, of things that unleash pandemonium, and heroes to defend us from them, and for those who thusly need inform me, in the show notes you'll find content warnings. So cautioned, audience, come with me to the Pantaloon Society. Episode 9. Le Roman de Renard. There once was a cunning little fox, and a big strong wolf, and in the winter, when food was scarce up in the hills, they came down into the villages, and went sneaking around the houses of good farming folk, to steal their chickens and their freshly baked bread. One fine clear night, it happened that they came upon a dairy, where some careless young maid had left the door ajar. The two of them slept inside, and they cried out in delight, for there was a huge freshly made cheese sitting wet and wrapped in muslin on the shelf in the chilly dairy. The hungry wolf and the fox could not believe their luck, and quickly dragged the cheese off the shelf and rolled it out of the dairy away into the frosty bushes. They fell upon the cheese and began to devour it, but the wolf was bigger and more powerful than the fox, and the fox was frightened of his long sharp teeth. So before long, the wolf had eaten most of the cheese, and left only a little sliver for the fox. The fox was too frightened to criticise the wolf for his greediness, but he determined to punish him for it, nevertheless. The next frosty night, they went out raiding together again, and they passed a village pond. This night was also beautifully clear, so the moon shone down and was perfectly reflected on the frozen surface of the water. What's that I smell? Do tell. I smell another fresh cheese. And there it is, too, across in the middle of the pond. Then let us get it. Eagerly, the wolf slid across the ice to where the cheese was, but it being a trick of the moonlight, he could not reach it, and he pawed at the ice, whining. The fox pattered over to him, next to the reflection. Well, it must be trapped beneath this ice. Let me bore a little hole through, and we can see how far down it is, and if we can fish it out. The fox dug a small hole through the ice to the water beneath, and poked his wet black nose in. Well, can you get to it? I cannot. Here, my friend, your tail is longer than mine. Poke it through the hole and see if you can perch the cheese. The foolish and greedy wolf did so right away, pushing his tail through the hole in the ice as far down as he could get it. But he could not reach the cheese. Then, when he tried to pull his tail back out again, the end became stuck fast, frozen in the ice. He whined and pulled at it, and the fox made a show of trying to dig him out and failing. Oh my goodness, my friend, you're quite stuck. I must run and get help to dig you out. 
chuckling to himself at his clever trick. The fox ran away. Not to get help, but to the farmhouse across the other side of the pond. They had stolen the cheese from the night before. And he shouted, Wolf! Wolf! And there's a wolf in the village! At which the farmer and the farmer's wife, and his big son, the dairymaid who had left the door ajar and been scolded for it, ran out into the village, carrying sticks and hayforks and mattocks. Whereupon, they spotted the wolf stuck in the ice and ran towards him. The wolf cried out in fear and tore his tail free of the ice, leaving the tip of it behind, and ran away into the hills, howling. And the fox sat by the pond and watched him run away, and laughed and laughed and laughed. What an awful little story, listeners. Honestly, these odd of animal tales tend to be rather vicious, don't they? Let us go instead, then, to a more wholesome place. A place of healing and compassion and fun. To the 11th Annual International Hospital Clowning Conference. The conference is being held at the Gasthusmuseum in Gael, which is a city in Belgium, of which I shall tell you more later. Jen, I brought you a hot chocolate. Oi, thanks. How are you feeling? I'm fine. Jen, how long do you think I was a doctor for? One hundred years? <laughs> it sometimes feels like that, but no. Closer to forty. And I was a very good doctor, so I'm quite experienced in telling when someone is not fine. And you are not fine. <sighs> Can't fool you. Do you want to go home? We can leave the conference early if you'd like. I was hoping it might be a distraction from dwelling on your ordeal in Windsor. I, I'm sorry that happened to you, especially so soon after you joined us. Even for the sort of work we do, that must have been very traumatic. If you'd rather find some way to process it all, I can speak to a psychiatrist friend of mine. The society would cover the expenses. Healthcare is absolutely unnecessary. It's okay. Please don't worry, Dr. Leach. I'm enjoying the conference. I really am. Especially the workshops. I'm really grateful that you brought me. And I know about trauma and how it works. It's just... It's all really fresh still. And sometimes the memories creep up on me. And I'm back in the woods with the... The, the crunching. Alright. Uh, you know your own mind best. Look, after the next talk, which is... Theatrical healing in the operating department. And let's go into the town and get some food. And... And you can talk about whatever you feel you want to. Yeah, okay. Uh, thanks. Are you going to another lecture? No, uh, I think I'd like a bit of a break. I'll, I'll stay here and chill out for a bit. Alright. I'll see you in an hour. As Dr. Harrington heads to the next talk, dear listeners, let me tell you the tale I promised earlier. Long ago, Perhaps around the 7th century, and there was a king named Damon, who ruled Erdigila in northeastern Ireland. He was a pagan, but his lovely wife was a Christian, and she raised their daughter, Dymphna, to be a devout Christian too. So pious was the girl that when she was 14 years of age, she took a vow of chastity and swore that she would take no bridegroom except for Christ himself. Dymphna grew to be as beautiful as her mother, and the royal family lived happily until one hard winter the queen died. King Damon, who had loved his wife most dearly, was stricken with grief and went about the castle weeping and the princess prayed every night for his heart to be healed. But his grief deepened and did not heal. 
and consequently, he sank into a great melancholy. The king's wise men and nobles begged him to remarry, for he had no son and heir, and the princess had sworn a life of chastity. Eventually, after long persuasion, he relented, but swore that he would only marry a woman who was as beautiful as his dead queen. The courtiers searched all over Ireland, visiting princesses and noble ladies from the Giant's Causeway to the Rock of Cashel to Boivera in the south, but found no woman whose beauty matched that of the dead queen. When they returned empty-handed, the king declined further into his madness, rambling so much that the king's fool complained there was no place for him there anymore, for the king was more of a fool than he. Damon began to confuse his daughter with her mother, and forget that his queen was dead. He insisted that he would be married to his daughter instead, for she was the only woman whose beauty would ever match his wife's. And he was a king, so his orders needs must be obeyed, no matter how mad they were. When Dymphna learned from two servants whom she trusted what the king had demanded of her, she ran to her confessor, Father Gerabernus, for help, crying that she would be wedded to no man, least of all her own father. The old priest told her to dry her tears and leave the matter with him, and he went away and conspired with the king's fool and the two loyal servants to hire a fast ship to carry the princess away from Ireland. And one night they gathered what gold they could carry, crept out of the palace, and went down to the coast, and sailed away. They sailed up the Eden and down the Tyne, now to cross the North Sea, then up Schelde, to Antwerp, where they stayed a while. But Father Gerabernus feared they would be found in the city, so he insisted that they must find somewhere more remote to hide from the king's madness. They travelled on into the marshes of Flanders until they reached a tiny village, where the city of Hale stands today. There, Dymphna and Gerabernus built a hospital for the poor and those afflicted by sickness and madness, and lived quietly for a time. When King Damon learned his daughter had fled to the continent, he pursued her furiously. He might not have found her there in the marshes, but the Dymphna was generous with the gold she had brought with her, and so the villagers around all had seen Irish coin. Damon's scouts realised they were close, when an innkeeper they stopped to ask a word of her refused to accept the Irish money, saying nobody thereabouts would exchange it. When they brought word back, Damon knew he had found his daughter, and went at once to the chapel where she and Gerabernus were at prayer. The priest cried that the Lord would punish him for his sin, and Damon, fearing to kill a man of God himself, commanded his guards to strike off his head. He ordered Dymphan to return home to be married, but she only refused and returned to her prayer. Angrily, he drew his sword and beheaded her by the altar, then stormed off back to Ireland. The bodies of the two lay in their chapel incorruptible for many days, until at last the people of the village came by and sadly bore them away to stone coffins in a nearby cave. But even with the priest and the princess dead, the sick and poor still came to the hospital they had built, and the people of the town continued to care for them in their memory. Subsequently, at the place where they were martyred, miraculous healings began to happen. People with sicknesses of the mind, with epilepsy, and who suffered demonic possession, were cured. The fame of Hale and its young Irish saints spread out across the marshes and beyond, and Dymphna was made the patroness of those afflicted in the mind, and also of abused children. 400 years later, the saints' relics were removed from their cave and placed in a church built in her honour, and it became a site of pilgrimage. Within another hundred years, accommodation had to be added to house the great many pilgrims coming from all over the continent. Soon the hospital and the church were overflowing with the afflicted, and the people of the now thriving town began taking them into their homes, giving them jobs to do in their fields, and in time came to treat them like members of their own families, calling them guests or boarders instead of patients. Some stayed until they were well, and some did not wish to return home and remain for their entire lives in their new community. The tradition continued for more than 500 years and was studied and commended as a model of best practice, or derided as archaic religious foolishness by commentators throughout the ages. In the 19th century, the local government absorbed Hale into their provision, 
and built a small facility that looked more like a country house than a hospital, the triage of the visitors before placing them with their families. In the beginning of the 20th century, thousands were housed with the town's inhabitants, but as the need for farming and labour declined along with traditional family structures, and community psychiatric care improved, the numbers of people coming to the city declined. Yet Kale retains its reputation as a curious and caring place to this day. An ideal location for a clown healing conference, wouldn't you say? So Jin thought as they read the English section of the local guidebooks in the museum gift shop. And as they read, they became aware of the feeling of being watched, and they looked up and around the shop. There was only an elderly lady half asleep behind the counter, and stood in the corner a small, slight girl with sandy hair and bright eyes. She glanced shyly at Jen over the book she was reading. You saw me looking. Uh, hey, I'm, I'm sorry to stare. I just thought your hair was cool. Thanks! I do keep it nice and short, so it's very cool, yes. Short? Oh, <laughs> that's, that's funny. Uh, are you one of the clowns? I am, yes. Uh, I'm in disguise as a normal person right now, so don't tell anyone. The girl laughed again, loudly this time, and put the book she was holding back on the shelf. Your normal person disguise is not great, I have to tell you. Oh no, I thought I was doing so well. My name's Jen, uh, they, she pronouns. Oh, you have pronouns! Everyone has pronouns, eh? Yeah, but you don't have the usual pronouns. You have uh, different pronouns, and uh, more than one pronoun. I'm starting the collection. I might pick up some Dutch ones as well. Uh, which do you recommend? Ah, oh, we're lucky. Now we can use uh, they for both uh, she and they. That's handy. I, I forgot to say, uh, my name is Renee. Are you here for the conference too? No, uh, I'm not supposed to be here, but I snuck in. I love acting and those kinds of things. I, I snuck into one of the lectures. I told them I forgot my pass, uh, but it was about medicine, so I mostly didn't understand. I thought maybe I came in on the wrong day, but then I saw somebody on a, what is it called, uh, a unicycle, uh, was juggling. Do you do any acting? I want to, but no, uh, not since high school. I, I study mathematics, otherwise I won't get a good job. Huh, you sound like my ma. That's what my uncle says. He is a priest. He says I need to be more better behaved. Boo. I know, right? Hey, uh, do you have to go soon or are you on a break? I could show you the city. I don't know. I should really stay here. I'm supposed to meet Dr. H when she gets out of the talk she's gone to. It will be fine. You can send her a message, right? Jen's stomach knotted around itself. She did not want to let Dr. Harrington down. But the Belgian girl seemed so interesting and fun, and she liked Jen's pronouns. She was very pretty. Yes, very pretty, with her bright eyes and her shy smile and her ever-so-convincing reassurances. It would be fine. Of course it would. Renée reached for Jen's hand, and to her own surprise, Jen took it and let the girl pull her out of the gift shop and out into the museum courtyard. The sky was February grey and damp with clouds, and still frosty on the ground. Jen wrapped her coat around her tightly, looked up and hoped there would not be a storm. They tried not to think about thundering hooves or barking hounds. Are you okay? Yeah, just a bit distracted. The two of them walked around the city, with Renee pointing out various buildings and landmarks to Jen, who marvelled at how very neat and clean the streets and buildings were. Even the clearly very old ones were so well kept they seemed freshly built. 
Renee kept stopping to say hello to people she knew, all of whom seemed happy to see her. They reached an open town square with grey paving and rows of bicycle racks. It was chilly without other buildings in the way to act as windbreaks. Renee pointed across the square. This is the market. Over there is the church, uh, where my uncle is in Grimm, is, is a priest. They approached the church in question, which was very pointy in the Gothic fashion. The tower was pale sandstone, but the nave and transepts were built with horizontal courses of stone and brick, giving it a lovely pinstripe effect. I Grimm. That's in even a half. We argue all at the time. He thinks I should be better at everything. Everything I do that he does not like, he says, God is watching you, or he says, If you do that, you will be in the hospital again. In the hospital? I went to the hospital once because I was not well. I was sad. Ooh, were you depressed? We don't talk about it like that here. Look, I get it. I dropped out of school and ran off to be a clown. I've barely spoken to my family for ages. I wish I could do that. It's been tough sometimes, but that's what I want to do with my life. It's who I am. What do you do if how you are is bad? What do you mean? As they passed a black door at the base of the church tower, it opened, and a woman in a floral dress stepped out. She spotted Renée and waved and said something to her in Flemish. Renée responded, shaking her head, but the woman went back inside the door. She thinks I'm here to see my uncle. Quick, let's run away before she gets back. Oh yeah, good idea. This time it was Jen's turn to take Renée's hand and lead her away. They ran away from the church through a long, windy car park, through some trees and round the back of a building, stopping only when they came to a dead end beside a bike shelter. Jen stopped and leaned against the curved glass wall, and Renée stopped beside her, panting. You're very fast. I get a lot of exercise. It's hard work, clowning. Squeezed in behind the bike racks, Jen became aware of how close Renée was, and how pretty her bright eyes were. Her face was flushed and glowing from running. They had forgotten all about the conference and Dr. Harrington, forgotten even the dark things that haunted them. Renée glanced out of the passageway and then looked back to Jen. What shall we do now? Jen could think of some things they would like to do now, but did not say them. I don't know. I haven't really thought much about it. I was just having fun. I don't even know why I've been walking around a strange Belgian city with someone I've just met. It doesn't make sense. Renée's face darkened and she looked down, sadly. You did something, didn't you? No, I didn't do anything. You did it again. I can feel you mucking about with my mind. I want to believe you. It's because I made you. I did magic. And you can tell. Most people can't tell. Only, only, my uncle. He says the magic is from the devil. I'm not supposed to use it. But I, I really wanted to hang out with you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You probably think I'm crazy now. My uncle is right. I'm bad. No, I don't think you're crazy. But it does explain it. Here, let me show you something. Jen reached into her pocket and fished around. Then produced a handful of loose change of various denominations. Half a packet of chewing gum and a crocheted finger puppet of a mouse. She put all but the mouse back in her pocket and sat the little woolen creature on her hand, then focused her attention on it. Presently, the mouse twitched its sewn-on whiskers and looked up at Renée. It squeaked once, and wriggled, and then went still again. Renée's eyes widened in surprise. That's so cool! You're not the only one who's magic. 
So you don't need to worry. But you do need to not use your present on me again to make me do stuff. I don't like being made to do stuff. I won't do it again. I'm not just a clown, you know. I work for something called the Pantaloon Society. And we're always looking for people who can do magic. Real magic. Can I introduce you to Dr. H? She'll be really interested. I can't tell anybody. My uncle says, Oh, here I'm going to go bail his head. Jen, will you come back with me? To my place? Yeah, right. Excuse me, have you seen a small person with purple hair? No? Well, thank you anyway. Jen, where have you gone? Why won't you answer my text messages? Jen and Renee walked out of the city, through scrupulously clean streets, past boxy houses in a variety of designs and into wide, flat fields, run through with channels full of water, all iced over and glinting. The text message alert on Jen's phone had gone off occasionally, but they were ignoring it. Whatever it was couldn't be that important, they thought. There was something, some insistent nagging thought in the back of their head that something was wrong, that they should check their phone, but they squashed it. Being around Renee was far more interesting. As they walked, Jen chatted incessantly about the society, and the different people with different presents that they had come across with Joe. Renee listened in fascination, asking the occasional question. Is it dangerous? Has anyone tried to kill you? Ah, uh, yes, sort of. My friend got possessed by a clown face ghost and attacked me. And there's the clown killer. There's uh, someone going around murdering clowns in the UK. Probably wants for presents, we think. Stabbed from behind with a knife. Did you ever get possessed? Yeah, I... I, um... I got... I got taken over by something horrible. Not long ago. It was... Somebody died. I remember the look in his eyes. That sounds bad. I'm sorry you had to go through that. Thanks. I My house is just around this corner. Down a single track road sat a long, single-story brick house. Outside in the garden stood a great hulk of a man, six feet tall at least, with steel-grey hair swept back to his neck and a thick, bushy beard. He wore the collar and sombre clothes of a Catholic priest. He was pruning a small tree, which was not much taller than him. He looked up from his work to see Renée and his thick eyebrows furrowed, and he called something to her in Flemish. She shook her head and shouted something back, then took Jen's hand and started running. She dragged them past the house and down into an even smaller road, then jumped over a low wall into a wooded area. The frozen grass crunched underfoot, and Renée stopped at the edge of a long stretch of icy water. I guess that was your uncle? Uh-huh. He asked me where I've been. He said I was supposed to be studying. Ha! It was then that Jen noticed that Renée had not let go of her hand yet. She looked down at it, and up at the Belgian girl, who smiled. Their eyes locked for a moment. Renée laughed and planted a small kiss on Jen's cheek. You're so fun, Jen. You really get to me. I do? Renée paused and then grinned impishly and suddenly stepped onto the ice. Finding it solid, she laughed and scampered across it. It's not dangerous. Sure. You like danger? Come under the ice. I wouldn't say I really like danger. It's fine. It's completely safe. Come under the ice. Jen felt her body tried to go to Renee. 
and this time something in him rebelled. With a great effort of will, she stilled herself and looked at Renée. Something of the sparkle had gone from her. The girl was not as pretty as she had thought. In fact, there was something sly and fickle in her expression as she reached out a hand. No. No, I don't think I will. Aww. Renée looked disappointed and shuffled her foot. From behind Jen came an angry shout, and Father Isengrim stormed through the icy woodland, yelling in Flemish. Jen had no idea what he was saying, but he seemed absolutely furious. He came to the edge of the frozen water and continued his tirade. Jen saw Renée smirk at her uncle, and then she spoke in Flemish, and Jen felt that urge to go to Renée, but weaker this time. It seemed the request had not been directed at Jen, though, because shakily the priest took a step onto the ice. There was no way he could hold his weight. Jen was frankly surprised it was holding Renée's. Sure enough, the ice began to crackle beneath him. Now he seemed frightened and he had gone very pale. He sputtered something which again Jen could not understand. Renée, stop it! You can't use your present like that. It's, it's wrong. I'm only going to scare him. You are bad! Angrily, Jen marched out onto the ice herself, which made further ominous noises and took hold of Father Grim's arm and tried to pull him back. Their combined weight on the same patch of ice was immediately too much, and it shattered beneath the priest's left foot, which sank below the surface. Into mud, not clear water, thankfully, but he fell to his other knee. The shock of the cold seemed to snap him out of his trance. Jen hauled him back towards the shore before the rest of the ice broke beneath them. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Damp and shivering on the bank, there was nothing particularly intimidating about the old priest. He was simply a tired and shaken old man with a muddy left foot. Jen glared at Renée, and helped her uncle away, back towards his house. Jen, there you are. Where have you been all this time? I met someone with a present, but she was, she was using it to hurt people. No wonder you weren't answering my texts. Sorry. No, no, it's quite all right. Strictly speaking, you're just doing your job. Jen did not think they had been doing their job, but they did not correct Dr. Harrington. I'm afraid that does happen sometimes. With great power occasionally comes greater responsibility. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to worry you. <laughs> oh, dear me, come here. It's all right. There, there. This little trip hasn't helped at all, has it? <laughs> Let us leave poor Jen with the comforting presence of Dr. Harrington and return to the quiet little road where Renée is angrily walking, muttering to herself in Flemish. But she is not alone. Her shadow, it seems, has a shadow, and presently she evidently comes to notice this. She pauses and looks around behind her. She could just make out a figure in the trees, wrapped in a large coat, with one hand held in front of its body, looking at something it is holding. The figure leans down and appears to blow on its hand, once, and then look up. She sees something else too, a glint of something around waist height. Something metal, and sharp, and long. And then there's the clown killer. Renée calls out in Flemish. The figure does not move. Hey, you! Creepy person. The figure twitches. Yeah, you! I'm not the person you're looking for, he 
You can leave. The figure disappears into the shadows. Renee smiles and turns to go on her way. The Pantaloon Society is a Cytogram Hair production by Lou Sutcliffe, AM Pronouns, distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. This episode used sounds from freesound.org. For full accreditation, content warnings and transcripts, please see the show notes. To be kept up to date on the show, please do follow on Twitter, at Pantaloonsock. Farewell, dear audience, and thank you for listening. <laughs>